five or six, maybe seven years ago, I don't remember, uh, Coach Ben Fox, and, uh, who was the previous offensive coordinator here, Coach Rick Fox is the current, and Rick, we love you, we're glad you're here. Um, but Coach Ben Fox was here, and it was his first Sunday to come with the team. He had his first year, his first Sunday to come to this, uh, we do every year, this service. And so he came, and um, about halfway through the service, he figures out, or sometime during the service, he figures out uh, where I played football in Alabama and who I played for, all right? And so he sort of gets ramped up about it and starts hitting his wife. He tells the story. And then he, um, after the service, he goes straight to Coach Fry, to Andy Fry, and says, hey, your pastor is one of the toughest people you know, and you don't even know it. He is one bad dude. I'm telling you, you don't even know how tough and how bad your pastor is. And I'm like, why, what? And he's like, I'm telling you, you just don't know. Well, I, so I see him. I had not met him yet. I see him in the bathroom, and uh, he walks up, and he says, hey, man, you're one of the toughest people I know. I know you are. And I was like, what? You know, he's like, I kind of like that thought anyway. <laughs> he's like, I know who you played for. And see, the connection was this, is that he had coached in Alabama prior to that, and he was aware of the coach that was sort of infamous that I prayed for and his reputation all throughout the South, and that he was crazy and ran people off and did a lot of odd things. It was rough. Now, he was talking to me like I was a Navy SEAL. You know, I was like, that's sort of like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not. But, that, but he was like, I know you're a tough dude. It's like, it's, I, I, know, I can't imagine. I've always wanted to meet someone who played for that guy. So I'll tell you a story. This is one of them. I told this years ago uh, here, maybe one of the first time, maybe 10 or 15 years ago to the team. So uh, this particular coach that I prayed for um, was notorious for starting practices over. And basically his premise was if he thought we were lollygagging and drowned, it wasn't going well, at any point he would start the practice over. He'd call us in Call us in and get on to us and say, I can tell you're sad, feeling sorry for yourself, whatever, you're not hustling. We would literally sometimes go, and no matter where we were in the, store, the practice, we would go back out of, and jog in together and start stretching and start from zero. All right, so maybe you had a coach do that. He did this. Well, on this one particular hot, hot camp day, uh, which I, where I played is down in the deep south. If Kentucky people were to go there and play, it was just two hours north of Mobile. If you were to go play there, you would think, Oh my gosh, I've never lived in the South. And we're talking hot, all right? So he pulls us in and he um, uh, and starts getting on to us and telling us we're feeling sorry for ourselves or whatever. Well, there was this guy, uh, this African-American player, his nickname was Cowboy. He was a great player. He actually played in the CFL for numbers of years. He was a senior. He was on the front row and he had his arms crossed like this. And um, he had a scab where he had slid along the ground on his arm there, a rough spot. He'd been in a skint place from practice. And we're about halfway through camp, I guess, at this point. And, he, uh, and the coach says, he says, you guys don't know what tough is, and you don't know what pride is, and you don't have tiger pride. And he was going through all this. And so out of nowhere, he reaches up, grabs the scab on that guy's, on his arm, and yanks it off and throws it in his mouth and chews it up and says, you don't, don't know what tough is. And he's like, and you're going to go back out and start over. And I'm like, you know, that's crazy, right? See, like, I don't guess I know what tough is, you know. <laughs> Maybe what it is. So, interesting story. I told that, I don't know, years and years ago here. And um, as an opening illustration, it really has no meaning. Um, 
But that year at center, every time I met a guy, he's like, man, that scab story was crazy, man. I mean, just, it was, that's the only thing I remember. It's like, you don't remember what we talked about that morning, you know, or anything else? It was the scab story. Here's, we're in the book of John and, uh, this morning. And John, who wrote the book, at the end of his book in chapter 31, verse 20, or sorry, 21, verse 30, he says this, you should see it on the screen here. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And basically what John says is that there were a lot of other stories I could tell. But he says, I sort of did a clip, a film clip, and picked up the stories that I wanted you to know. And notice what he says, why he wrote the book. So that you would see who G- that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, truly God. And so I, <laughs> I, I it's okay to remember that first thing you see me, guys, if you say, hey man, tell me about that scab story. If you want to know more about that coach. But more so, because it feels weird to talk to a preacher and say, hey, tell me about the spiritual stuff and that, whatever, if you first met me. But John was saying, I don't want you to get lost in the, in the bells and whistles of the story to miss the real point. And that's why I picked these stories and wrote them down. The Holy Spirit had him write them down for us to know. All right, so we're going to look at this story uh, quickly this morning. And I think it begs the most important question in all of life. There's one question that is the most important question that anybody on this earth I'm not just saying it to because you guys are here or us or anyway, any, any other reason. I believe this is the most important question that people have to answer in the world. And they have to answer this question, who is Jesus Christ? It's the most important question to answer in all of life, I think. And so um, we're going to look at a guy that didn't really get it well this morning. We're going to see Jesus' encounter at this pool with this paralytic. And we're going to look at, and hopefully, um, hopefully I can raise him up this morning and answer a little bit more of who Jesus is to you, that you would not see just the story, but you'd see the person and, um, of Jesus, which I think was John's intention. We're going to look at three things, the pool, the paralytic, and the predicament, all right? The pool, the paralytic, and the predicament. So can I pray for us and pray for you? Father, um, God, I pray that you would help us to as we look to your word this morning, would you help us to um, see the right things and to see Christ? And Father, I think about my upbringing in Alabama until I got to college, that I missed everything about Christianity and didn't really understand it until I got to college and I thought I knew. And I think about how that's almost so many people's story and how refreshing it was to see what it really was and who you were, Christ. And so would you help us this morning? Would you help me? Um, I'm just a sinner, just a regular old guy. Um, And I'm really not that tough. I'm really um, pretty weak oftentimes. And would you help, uh, help me, Father, to convey uh, the beauty of who really Christ is. And would you remind us of that? In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's look at the pool first. 
You'll notice there in verses one and two, um, after there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda was the name of the pool, which was five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So here, whenever you see facts, I just wanna say, whenever you see these type of descriptions in the scriptures, here's one of the reasons you should, you should take note. The reason they're there, one of the reasons, is to let you know that this is real time and space and a real event that the, the scriptures often are telling us what places are, how far they are, the names of them, and so that the Bible is not just a made-up story, it actually is a real historical book uh, that is breathed and unique and powerful, but it is happening and telling stories that really happened. So this may seem like an odd story, but the, even the history and what it's telling us, those, length, those notes there tell us that. And you, you know, the, the Sheep Gate is still there in Jerusalem in the wall. It's still in the north side of Jerusalem. You'll see uh, there's a feast going on. We don't know which feast it was. Most people, commentators, theologians I read, think this was the Passover feast, but we're not for sure. But there's a feast going on, and um, you'll see that. You also notice that there's a name, the Bethesda, of this particular pool. And uh, that Bethesda in Aramaic actually means uh, the place of mercy. Or potentially, some of the words if you, in the Greek, a Greek word parallel to it, might be a place of pouring out. But it carries the idea of mercy. Even that, though, is important to know. This is a place of mercy. And then uh, you may have noticed um, uh, the, the idea of colonnades, and it has five there. And I just want to tell you this, and this is relevant for the college campus as well. Uh, for sure. But um, for, uh, during the 18th, 19th centuries, the, uh, there was a huge debate and really attack on Christianity and the Bible around this particular pool. And this pool, they said, hey, this pool is nowhere to be found. There's nothing named like this. And they said, therefore, the Bible's not true. Well, at the end of the 19th century, a guy, basically an archaeologist in Jerusalem, finds it. And also they were saying, hey, it has five sides. Nobody made pools with five sides. There's no such thing as a pentagon in anywhere in the Roman, uh, Roman Empire or among the Jews. There's not a five-sided thing. Well, what they found was a pool, and they found it. And the, Jerusalem, like many cities in, the, in ancient, were built on top of each other. The ruins were going on. So they, over through centuries, they would build on top of things instead of knocking them down. Well, they found the pool below. An archaeologist finds it. And he actually finds it. And the pool is actually designed in a way it was square, but it had a ridge in the middle of it where another colonnade was. So technically, it did have five sides. It was four around it and the one in the middle. There were five colonnades, and people would sit under that. So this is place, the pool, just so you know, this is a real place, and it really existed. Therefore, these things really happened. And um, you'll also notice that in verse 4, I don't know if you caught it. Uh, my assistant caught it when she was putting the verses up there. If you'll notice, there's no verse 4. Anybody catch that? To see that? I thought it was a typo. Um, just need to know why uh, that's there. Here's why, without having to get into it. In the textual criticisms of the Bible, and as they try to uh, evaluate it, um, unbelievably, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Bible. There's no book that stands like that in all of history. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have closer to it. And basically what they did, and the guys who did this particular version that we quoted, there were 30 scholars, they, they, they tested the, script, the, the text to see, um, basically they found out that the oldest manuscripts that we have didn't have that particular verse in there. It probably was over on the side of subscript, it wasn't a part of it. So most say that's probably not the inspired word of God. And, you can, uh, and so they, some take it out, and that's why it's there. But I just want you to hear that... It doesn't change the meaning of anything. It's just a technicality there. This pool really was the place 
that things happen. And so you'll notice there was a stirring, and, and what that verse said, if you want to know what verse 4 said, you can go find it. It says there was, some think it was just more of a superstition, but it could have been God, but there was, they said an angel would come into the pool once a year oftentimes, and if the waters moved, which some think that could have just been an underground, underground hot spring that has some healing elements to it, but it would move, and they would try to rush to try to get into the pool who could be first, and they could get the blessing of that stirring of the angel coming to the pool. We don't know, but there really was a pool, and I didn't want you to be sidetracked by wondering if we were leaving out something. But also what I want you to know is that multitudes were gathering. You see that in verse 3? That the multitudes of invalids and uh, blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And this was a place, this was a pool where they were coming to be healed. They thought there was a healing place here. It actually did happen sometimes. We don't know why, what the cause of it was. But multitudes were there. And the guy that we're focusing on next, the paralytic, he was there. He had been there 38 years coming to this place hoping to be healed. Multitudes. This pool was the thing that they looked to that they said, if I could have what that thing has to offer, this is what will finally my life will be better. This is what I need. This is what they live for. Let me just pause right there and ask you this question. Because when Jesus asked this question in our particular text, he says, do you want to be healed? He's not just talking about physical healing, although he is talking about it. There's a big question going on here. And metaphorically, there's a lot going on. And there's reasons for these things happening. And let me just ask you this. What pools, if you will, quote unquote, do you look to for your hope and to define it? What pools have you decided, if I have this, then I'll finally be okay? What are those pools in your life? Is it success? Is it money? Is it an education from center? Is it maybe to have a person or family or what? I mean, what is it that you look to and you think, if I have this, my life will finally be okay? Because listen, Jesus still, still does heal this guy we're looking at. He does get healed, but he also dies. Later in life, he's not still living today. But what pools do you look to to define you? Heck, I, can, I just come up with pools just to get me through the week, right? I mean, I think, and you guys, this is why I was in camp. If we could just get to pass this practice, I'll be all right. My life will be better, right? You think, if I can just get past Saturday, the final scrimmage, if we can just get to game week, if I can just get past this next week, and guess what? You get past that, and there's something else. Isn't it? You always, I mean, in a sense, that's the way we sort of function as human beings. We're always thinking, what pool, grand or small, is what I need in order to be all right in life? And so that's an important one. I, I will, um, I'm going to read a quote here to you from Tom Brady. This was an interview in uh, 60 Minutes. Kevin will excited because he's a huge Patriots fan. He, the fact that Tom Brady's name is on the screen in the service, um, he will have joy. But in this interview, notice what he says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater on, out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think it's kind of, he says, me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be when the interview asked, 
what's the answer? You see what Brady responded in the interview? He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What's our pools in life that we think? Is the Super Bowl your pool? Um, is it family? Is it, um, it's interesting when people become, um, become empty nesters and they, they thought having a family and they transition. It's like, what do I do now? I mean, what is your pool that you look for? Um, secondly, we'll look at the paralytic here. And notice in verse 5, as we transition there, I want you to notice just a couple of things about him. And the first one of this is just that he'd been there 38 years. That's double, if you're in college, that's more than double your life. He's been coming to this place hoping to be cured, to be healed. That's how long he's been coming here. Now, we don't know why he was paralyzed. We don't know if he had an accident. We don't know if he was born that way. We don't know if he's all 38 years of his life or half of his life. That we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know. But that's a long time. And that's a long time to suffer. And that's a long time. And by the way, to be an invalid and be this place, most of the culture in ancient times, most cultures, including the Jews, those that were uh, that knew Yahweh, viewed those who were sick and invalids that they were cursed, that something was bad in their life, that they were outcasts, they weren't treated kindly. And so I want you to notice this. Look in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you... <laughs> there are many people in life who think that that God doesn't see what they're going through or what they've been through or what it's like to be them. And the text is letting us see that, you mean, you see how, <laughs> I mean, he knew about his, John's telling us, he knew how long he's been there. He knew his story. He's coming to him and it's such a compassionate, compassionate interaction. He sees him he knows him, and he moves towards him. While everyone else is moving away, Jesus is moving towards him. Now listen, one of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion is that every other religion says, says that uh, the gods save the worthy. If you execute this or do this, then you get the pleasure of the gods. You know what Christianity says? The opposite. God saves the not worthy. It's a gracious move of God to save. And by the way, the Bible teaches that no one's worthy. There is for all of sin and false for the glory of God. And there is a moving towards him that is so kind and so compassionate. He sees him, he talks to him, he speaks to him, he even seeks him out afterwards. If you'll look there in verse 14, what I, the other thing I want you to see, it, it is Jesus doing the one pursuing him. Jesus goes to him, and Jesus comes after him again afterwards, after he goes away. He doesn't even remember, I don't know who healed me. He gets, gets caught up in the moment. And Christianity is also not men or people saving themselves. It's about God pursuing saving people. People who can't and don't come to him. If, you, if you've 
a Christian and you're a follower of Christ, the reason that you are is because God came to you. Not because you're smarter. Not because you figured it out. Not because you have a greater willpower than those, than other people. I mean, by the way, let me just say, if you hear anybody in Christianity and they, and they say, they portray themselves as if they are smarter than you, which is what people feel, right? Or that they make better decisions than you or somehow I, I committed and you didn't, then they don't understand what true grace is and they don't really understand true Christianity. Listen, friends, the hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, I Once Was Lost, did it say I figured it out and I found God? It's not what the hymn says. It says, he found me. I once was, I was found. Christianity is God coming to us. And what a gracious, gracious thing that is. He, um, Romans 3 says, um, in Romans 3, Paul says that there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. For all of us have turned away. Actually, in the next chapter of this particular book of John, in John 6, it says, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And in John 1, 12, the very beginning of this book, it says this, for as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, a father, husband's will or a father's will, but born of God. Meaning, so how do we come to this salvation, or how does anyone have it? It's because God comes at you. And listen, I, I remember my own college story. I'm so thankful for the three teammates, three teammates who came in my dorm room. I'm playing Tecmo Bowl, right? I mean, I'm thankful for Tony Brown, I'm thankful for Chopper. I just went blank. Calvin Cochran. Three of my African-American teammates who came into my room and sort of asked me the question, do you want to be healed? I didn't figure it out. When I look at my own life, it came to me. That's important because that's where our hope is found in him coming. So then notice what he says to him. He says, he asked the question and Jesus, and he, and he, and he sort of kind of gets called into, well, if I could just get into the pool, if I go down, I'm never the first one. You see in verse 7, and Jesus, and Jesus says, listen, get up and walk instantly. Now, it's interesting. I mean, so if this week... If there was a guy who was down here for 38 years at our, at our pool or at the thing outside of Norton, the Norton Center right there and was there for 38 years and couldn't move, and you think that he all of a sudden could walk and he pulled up his bed and he watched our walk around town, would we be flabbergasted by that? We lose the power of this. This says that this person, Jesus right here, rules every cell, every molecule, everything, and at the power of his word, everything changes in a moment. Like, dude comes up, right? I, I've never been able to do that. They didn't have, what are you, pushing it down, right? He comes up. I don't know how he came up walking, but it wasn't slow. It says that once he did it. And John wants you to know it was instant. This is where the power was. It was there, and he could have it, and Jesus 
heals him right there on the spot. Wasn't his, it wasn't his faith. He didn't even know what God was. God just chooses to heal him right there in that space. Loves the paralytic. The power of that. So don't, quick demonstration there, Jesus' power. Then lastly, the predicament. And um, there's a lot of the passage here, but here's, here's the predicament that we sort of see in the passage. There's two ways that show up. One is the response of the paralytic, what Jesus does for him. His response is a predicament, right? It's not really a great response. I'll show you why in just a second. But the other, the other issue here is the Sabbath. You see that immediately in verse 9, now that day was on the Sabbath. At the end of verse 9, it lets us know. And the, these Pharisees, who were the religious people of the day, are mad at Jesus. They're ready to kill him. They're the first question they ask, hey, did you? They don't even care the guy's healed. They don't even celebrate with him. They're like, hey, how'd this happen? Did Jesus do that? I mean, they are on it and at him at this moment. So there's a predicament. The response and the Sabbath. First, let me just show you the paralytic's response, Okay. I wrestled with it this week, studying it. But most of the people I trust and study and look to and study it say this, this paralytic didn't become a follower of Christ. Now you say, well, how, how do you get that? Well, he never, <laughs> he just gets up and starts walking. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't even fall down. Over three, a few chapters later in John 9, a blind man is made to see. And he wants to, he's willing, he falls down at Jesus' face and says, I'll just go anywhere you want. He is enamored with the person who did what had just happened to him. But this guy doesn't. And he starts walking and, and, it, and he starts to get in trouble with these Pharisees and he says, well, I didn't heal myself. Some dude did. He blames him. Right? And then when <laughs> Jesus seeks him out again, Jesus is still coming to him. He comes to him, and he, um, he says, okay, and he turns him in. Do you see that? He goes and says, it was Jesus. And he tells us, there was no response of thanksgiving. There was no. Now, look at what Jesus told him, and this is, where, this is how his, we know his response is bad. Your response can, oftentimes there are responses to Jesus that are wrong, and one that I had a lot of my life through up to college until I finally saw Jesus for who he was. These were sort of my responses to what he did here. But notice what he did. You can respond to Jesus in one or two ways. One, the Jews, there's this thing called legalism. And the Jews responded, and they started talking about the law and what you have to do, right? And they started talking about the Sabbath and keep it. They had made up laws. They had actually made up a law that you couldn't fold up anything and carry it on the Sabbath. They kept adding, it's about to do, to do, to do, and they were mad about the law. Or... Or you can respond with legalism, or you can respond with what they call licentiousness, or just not caring about what Jesus has done. So look what Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes to him and says, hey, I have made you well, but go and sin no more, or something worse will happen, could happen to you. Jesus is saying, your life is supposed to change. You He's not telling him here, which we know. He's not saying that, uh, and we know that here at our church, we talk about it all the time. He's not saying all of a sudden that salvation is not by grace. He's not saying, hey, if you do well, you'll earn it. He's saying, if you really have understood grace, you will change. If you really saw me for who I was. But the legalist, sometimes we respond to God and we, with the law, and we, our responses are just not good. 
And so here, you can miss Jesus by trying to be obedient, which was the Pharisees, and talk about the law, or you can miss Jesus by trying to run away from him and do your own thing. And people oftentimes do it. The Jews were the church, and they didn't know who he was. Do you see that? We can miss the love of this person, Jesus, by trying to obey and think that we can earn his favor or get power over him or think we're better than we are and not see how really helpless we are or by running as far away from him being Lord of our life and saying, I'm going to do my own thing. That's what they did or could have done. And um, the other one is this. It's just the other response that can be terrible is, um, and I think this happened in this passage, is sometimes... It's the idea of a victim and a villain. And sometimes our brokenness, which this guy had tons of brokenness, it's not his fault that he's paralyzed, probably. It's not his fault. And many of us have things that happened to our lives that weren't our fault. Annie was referring to that, things that just happened to us. And we're victims of the fall and the, the heinousness of this life. And Jesus comes to victims and he says, I love you and I see you. And I'm so sorry for your sorrow. It breaks my heart. But what's also true of all, all people is although some of us, are, we have victim parts of our life, we're also villains. And isn't it interesting that this invalid, Jesus says, still addresses him, don't sin. And what the Bible also teaches is that we're villains and we're also guilty of breaking his law. And to the villains, you know what Jesus says? I forgive you. To the, the, um, to the victims, he says, I care, and I love you, and I'm sorry, and I see you. And to the villains, he says, I forgive you. And oftentimes, we don't see Jesus because we're so enamored and so caught off. We're blurred by either one of those two. We're too hard trying to be good or don't want to see, or see ourselves as terrible and villains, or we don't see ourselves appropriately. So lastly, the response here, we'll see. And uh, this is our close that we sing is that you'll notice that Jesus, this Sabbath thing was coming on. And you get to the verse, and they just started getting mad at him. Like, hey, did he heal somebody on the Sabbath? And Jesus, in verse 17, says, as they come to him and persecute him, he says, um, uh, he says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. And here's what he means. The Sabbath was a day where they were supposed to take the day off, worship God, and do that, uh, and take a break. And uh, that anyone didn't do that. The rabbis knew, the Pharisees knew, that if anybody, the only person who couldn't take a break was Jesus or God himself. Because if God took a break on the Sabbath, the world wouldn't be, keep running. He's holding everything together. He's the one that rules over the cells and bodies that he's telling to heal and do that. So Jesus says, I'm uh, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying to them at that moment, he's saying, listen, my father's been working and I'm working. We never break a day, take a break because we are the Lord of the Sabbath. The world exists because of we don't take a break because we're the Lord over it. And he says, I'm king. And it makes them really, really mad. He claimed to be God. You see that in verse 18? But here's the other solution to the predicament. Without having to go into it too much, notice that it says they decided to kill him. They decided to kill him. When Jesus healed this paralytic, he was inaugurating his own death so that he could do something that he came to do in his first coming that was the most important thing to do. Don't you ask the question, I mean, we do in this world of inclusiveness, 
Then you ask the question, why didn't he heal all the invalids? Why did he just pick out one? Why didn't he just show there and wave his hand and clear, clear all of them? Did you wonder that? I did. Why is it just one guy? And why did he withdraw? Well, the hint is in the crowds. He's staying away from the crowds. It tells us there was a big crowd there, and then he pulls away because of the crowd, and he comes back in and talks to this guy, and then he zooms back out. But here's the point. There was something far greater problem and far terrible, more terrible, I know it's hard to believe, than 38 years of being an invalid. It was called sin. And when Jesus came for the first time, he came to deal with the biggest problem, the bigger problem, the greater problem that this world had. Now, the Bible teaches he's going to come again for his second coming. When he comes for his people, then he'll take care of all the diseases and everybody will get it. But he sporadically was healing people to show you that he was God and he was the Lord of the Sabbath so that you would know that he was coming to deal with a far greater purpose and a far greater problem, which was worse than being an invalid and worse than whatever brokenness you're going through, whatever disease you have or whatever problem you have. There's a far worse scenario for all of us, and that was sin that had earned the wrath of God. And that's the thing he's talking about. Listen, worse things will happen to you if you don't turn to me. That's what he meant when he said that. But the wrath of God would come, and sin has earned that for us. My dad has stage four cancer. All right? He is being healed by immunotherapy. He's, he's got no tumors in him after a year and a half of taking immunotherapy. It's this new thing that, that, that will address melanoma and, and different things. It has no side effects. It's not, it is crazy. But when we got the diagnosis a year and a half ago, it was like, hey, we don't know if immunotherapy will work, but we're going to give it to him. And... He probably has six to seven months to go. <laughs> what if my dad would have said, or the doctors would have told me, yeah, so we're going to give him Tylenol. He's got tumors in his lungs and in his arm and in, uh, in his liver. We're going to give him Tylenol. And my dad's like, yeah, I like Tylenol. I don't hurt when I take Tylenol. That's way better. Just give me some Tylenol. But I would say, Wait a minute, but what are we going to do about the cancer? Tylenol just is momentary. It's just momentary. It doesn't help. It's like, no, 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 no. He needs the immunotherapy. I mean, can you imagine? Well, listen, that's how preposterous it is for us to look to pools and to want short-term solutions. Really what the world is always doing, and I was doing it, we think we want Tylenol for the ease for the moment, just for the day, when really we all have a tumor that is going to kill us. And Jesus came as the good doctor and said, listen, I'll heal someone, I'll give you a little Tylenol here and there, but I have come to deal with the greater cancer, which is sin itself. Is that not incredible? Now, people are mad at God right now because they don't get the Tylenol they want, but this God knew the real problem that you and I have, and he knew the pools that we want to go to. He came to deal with a greater issue. Let me just, here's the application for everybody as we go into eating. Do you want to be healed? That's the question for your four years in college. Do you want to be healed? Do you want Tylenol? Or do you want to deal with the real cancer of sin in our hearts? Lord, would you help us as we turn now to sing in closing?
and to commission our dear friends. And we pray that you would, um, we thank you, God, that you are a good God and that you're wise. I pray you would help us to see the beauty of what you did and you accomplished on the cross so that we might be healed. We need it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.